And now, three brief, difficult teachings. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning verse 43, reading through 45a. Matthew attributes these words to Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of God in heaven. Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Then the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 21 through 22. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him and said, You're lacking one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But the man was dismayed at this statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. Here ends these gospel readings. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Amen. Today we'll wrap up this five part sermon series that is basically my pastoral response to your most pressing questions and about theology, about scripture, about ethical and moral dilemmas, as you shared them with me some time ago now. Many of you shared teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, three of which we just read a moment ago, that you found especially difficult either to understand or to live out. And what I've chosen to do today, rather than address each of the teachings I just read a moment ago, because it would, <laughs> it would take more time than we have, and I'm not, not sure you'd get a long-term benefit out of it is what I'm going to do, is to do my best to teach you more about who Jesus was. In hopes that once you have perhaps a broader perspective on who Jesus was as a person in history, that perhaps his teachings, even the difficult ones, will at least make a little bit more sense as you puzzle them in the years to come. Our boys were just old enough to both be in school at the same time, so this was probably, looking back, our celebratory outing following that. So it was probably somewhere between 15 and 17 years ago. I can't recall exactly. But Cherie and I decided to take a day off work at the same time together and go out and go fishing in our old boat. And that boat embodied what it meant to be a boat, which stands for break out another thousand. Anyway, another story. <laughs> But we'd pulled the boat into a cove while we were out fishing that had lots of stumps and trees sticking up, even clear out in the middle of the water, hoping that the fish would be close by. And Cherie says, do you hear that noise? Yeah, I said. You mean the one that kind of sounds like a waterfall off in the distance? But as our ears tuned into the noise more closely, we quickly realized that it was neither a waterfall nor was it a faraway noise. What we were actually hearing was water rushing into the back of our old boat underneath the floorboards. Within seconds, we had thrown our fishing poles down. I had started the engine, and I had the throttle all the way open, pedal to the metal, if you will, hoping to speed back across the lake to the boat ramp before we sank. By this point, 
The motor was straining everything it had just to go about five miles per hour instead of its normal whopping 25. I swung by the boat ramp, still on the move, and Cherie hopped off to the front and side of the boat up to her waist in the water, wading her way up to get at the trailer while I kept the boat moving, circling the entire area. Fortunately, the boat was designed, we didn't know this then, but we learned later, it was designed to be self-bailing, though we didn't know it. And I was actually doing the right thing on accident by just keeping on moving. And now, thankfully, we got the boat on the trailer, pulled it out of the water, and were able to drain it and insert the plug before going back out and finishing some splendid time together. There's a reason I share this story with you on the day we're talking about some of these difficult teachings of Jesus. Most of us have an idea of who we think Jesus really was as a person, and some of us have actually not really examined it very closely. We've taken this rather unexamined image of Jesus out for a spin in real life. We've even placed a great deal of trust in it, kind of like we did in our old boat. Uh, and we, we know, but kind of like our old fishing boat also, if our image of Jesus has not been examined very closely, well, it might have some holes in it. And eventually our faith might just sink when we've been out on the waters of life for a while, maybe even far away in the back of a cove someplace, and our senses get tuned into the actual reality and the stress of faith and life and all of these things come at us so fast. So today, rather than talk to you about isolated teachings of Jesus, I hope to teach for a few minutes what most mainline pastors learned in seminary about Jesus. But for whatever reason, haven't always done a good job communicating in worship services like this one. Remember, that was my promise with this whole series, to pass on to you what most mainline pastors learn in seminary, but for one reason or another, don't always share them. Now, I am a student of preaching. I love preaching. I listen to dozens of sermons, in fact, every week, in hopes of learning how to better preach myself, but also how just to get a feel for all the different ways to communicate the gospel I so dearly love. And I have to tell you something strange I have observed. After listening to I don't know how many sermons over my 25-plus years in ministry, and that is that I've heard very, very few sermons about who Jesus actually was and the scope of his teaching. In fact, I've never heard a sermon about who Jesus was as an actual historical figure, drawing not just on biblical sources, you know, mostly from the Gospels, like we're prone to do, but from information also available in archaeological and historical lines of scholarship. And so I'm going to preach one today about Jesus, the sermon I've never heard. <laughs> I hope you'll bear with me as I try something out. And my hope is that maybe just some of this would serve perhaps when you most need it as the missing plug in your boat one day, whether that be in life or in faith as you seek to follow the way of Jesus. The popular image of Jesus, and I say popular in the sense of the most widely held image of Jesus by Christians and non-Christians alike, for that matter, speaks and imagines Jesus with a great sense of certainty and clarity as the only begotten Son of God whose purpose was to die 
for the individual sins of everybody in the world. This is not entirely wrong, and it's not entirely inaccurate, but it's a very simplistic and even limited view of Jesus that if focused on too greatly to the neglect of other things, fails to recognize the richness and fullness of, of who Jesus fully was. You see, this popular image of Jesus continues to thrive largely in evangelical preaching, and it's largely the default image for most of us if we were born or raised near the Bible Belt. It's culturally acceptable here, and yet only partially adequate if we really want to understand Jesus. For those of us who attended mainstream seminaries or divinity schools, that image of Jesus faded from prominence in our thinking, usually, or was integrated into a more expansive one as part of our educational process. But we had the luxury of seminary helping that to happen. With more study, we saw that the popular image of Jesus came about by projecting the early church's later beliefs, a generation or two or three or several more after the time of Jesus, back into his ministry, and even how they were written about in the gospel books and the scriptures. We learned in seminary that in all likelihood, Jesus did not literally speak, as he's often quoted, particularly in John's gospel, and that even Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the synoptic gospels, are a more complex mix mixture of historical memory and post-Easter theology from those who came along much after the time of Jesus. Many mainline Jesus scholars believe the flowery language, you know, the times the Gospels attribute words to Jesus speaking of himself and an exalted status, those were likely added back into the Gospels many years after Jesus was gone. So when one begins to understand that Jesus may not have thought of himself in the same elevated terms of faith, it begins to help under, us understand his teachings a bit more that might sound a bit confusing if we forget he probably had a rather humble opinion of himself. So imagine, if you will, that we have with us spread across the front here today a panel of scholars, people who are scholars first, and if they happen to be people of faith, that comes second. I'm going to be generalizing and summarizing my experience of impressions of reading of Jesus scholars and historians like Bart Ehrman and Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan and Reza Aslan and others. So what I hope to give you is a glimpse at who scholars say Jesus was as an actual person of history. And hopefully this will broaden and deepen our views of the one we seek to follow faithfully. And it will help us understand the teachings of the Gospels that sound difficult, maybe, or confusing, in a little better light, if you can remember some of these things about Jesus. We don't have time for all of them, but I want to give you at least a few that are important, I think. First, most historical scholars agree Jesus was a person vividly in touch with the world of the Spirit. Whatever else he was, even secular scholars believe he was a holy man, holy person. It's actually a semi-technical term often reviewed, used in the history of religions in that field. The word holy, when used in this sense as a holy man or a holy person, is um, not an adjective pointing to purity or personal piety, but a noun pointing to the mysterium tremendum, the awesome reality and power at the heart of the very existence 
of creation, as Marcus Borg used to put it. A holy man or a holy person, then, is a person who experiences the holy, the sacred, vividly and frequently, and who is experientially in contact with the power of another realm. In our faith language, we say, in touch with the power of the Spirit. To say it another way, holy people like this, these folks believe that all of this is not all there is. And they do so with a passion most of us cannot fathom. There's a second feature even these secular historical Jesus scholars tend to agree on, and I think it must be remembered and incorporated into the Jesus we embrace with our faith, and that is his relationship to the society of his time. He was deeply involved in the current affairs and events that affected his own people and his own time and his own generation. And the gospel that Jesus proclaimed was not political in the sense of partisan politics, but it was highly political in the broad sense of what politics means. That means politics simply in the broad sense means the rules by which a society agrees to live and function by. And so in that sense, another way to say it is, the gospel of Jesus was deeply social. What went on in the real world mattered, not just what went on in the spiritual realm. And Jesus most likely saw himself within the tradition of the Hebrew prophets, crying out against the religious majority, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth, but also picking fights with the Roman government. He eventually got crucified because he challenged the status quo both of the government and of the faith leaders of his time because he saw this disconnect between what was right, what was just, and what they were doing. And he called on them and he rallied people with around him to stand against unjust leadership in the government and in the religious arena. And so his connection to social justice in his own time is very central to understanding who Jesus really was as a person of history as well as a person of faith. And I hope that this doesn't escape you. It's very central to my own understanding of who Jesus was, and I hope you keep that in mind as you fathom who it is you follow. Jesus was not and would not be shy about opposing unjust systems. Today, were he living in bodily form among us? It would be very consistent with how he did ministry and did life in his own day. Now, I don't really have to scratch my head and say, well, what would Jesus do when thinking about the fact that billionaires are taking rocket ship rides while other human beings starve to death and others live in dire, deadly poverty? I don't really have to wonder what Jesus would say to Christians who pretend the gospel was somehow strictly spiritual and not social. Because, as Jesus illustrated, political choices are no longer political choices when they inflict suffering on another human being. At that point, they're moral choices. They're ethical choices. His gospel was very much tied to current events. And what a faithful way of navigating those looked like. The third thing I want to mention is really not separate from the second, but rather an extension of his deep connection to social concerns. And scholars tend to agree, as a prophet and renewal movement leader, 
Jesus called his hearers into what scholar Walter Brueggemann called an alternative community with an alternative consciousness. In the language of our gospel witnesses, we call this the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Jesus demonstrated the values of this kingdom of God, this alternative community with an alternative consciousness in several major ways. He did so in his unconditional acceptance of outcasts, for example. Jesus, by doing this, pointed to an identity defined by uh, one's relationship to God rather than how society saw a person. He radically proclaimed a way of peace instead of war, that really would have put a damper on much of American life. Quite notably, he shifted the emphasis followed by the religious majority of his time away from their mantra, be perfect as God is perfect. And he totally flipped it on its head as evidenced in Luke 6:36, where he proclaimed, be compassionate as God is compassionate. Do you see the difference? Instead of personal piety, compassion for others became central in his gospel message. And this was to be the mark of his followers in this life, not some other life. Jesus' intention was the transformation of his people in the face of an actual historical crisis, a social crisis, a real pressing crisis, one that was unfolding during his time And then next, he made clear that in this kingdom, this alternative reality, which he called his followers to live, this way of living, the fruits of a life lived in accord with the Spirit are to be not only embodied in individuals, but as part of the life of a faithful community of followers. A community based on compassion. And this community would seek justice through compassion for those society marginalized and left behind. Before I conclude, let me just share uh, another illustration with you that maybe will help, no pun intended, shed some light on this. Shree and I have three beautiful crystal candle stands on our dresser at home. I can't remember when we got them. It's been a long time. I'm pretty sure we got them as a gift at our wedding. But every so often, something really spectacular happens involving these crystal candle stands. Our bedroom windows face east, and so sometimes early in the morning, the sun is just beginning to rise above the edge of the horizon. It has to be early. The morning sun shines in through one of our bedroom windows and will hit those crystal candle stands And because they're crystal and because they have an ornate design, when the sunlight hits them, they shine beautiful prisms of light in all sorts of crazy directions all around the room. These beautiful, captivating prisms of light. Not just straight through in a line from the way the sun is coming, but due to their design, it shows these prisms of light on the ceiling, the floor, the side walls. And even when the closet door is open, you might see some of those prisms all the way back in the deepest, darkest recesses of our closet. And when I notice this little miracle happening to me, it is one of God's little miracles, I just have to stop and stare because 
It's breathtaking to behold the tremendous beauty that these crystal candlestands are reflecting, all from the morning light coming from what appears to be one direction. And as people of the Christian faith, we believe that Jesus, like these candlesticks, reflected beautifully the breathtaking amazement of God. And this beauty that he reflected inspires us still today to seek to embody this kind of life ourselves, reflecting the glory of God to the world. If we only think Jesus came along so he could die in order that we could all individually experience divine forgiveness of our sins, how will that image reflect the full spectrum, the full picture of all God's amazing beauty to the rest of the world? If salvation is only about some other world, why would we ever seek to transform this one? Instead, When we see Jesus in a fuller, more accurate sense, something quite miraculous begins to happen. Not only are his teachings less confusing, hopefully, when we study them or read them, but we begin to realize with God's help that together, as a community, we really can invite the world to participate in something that is not only beautiful, but life and world-altering, transforming, even, in this life. A more loving and a more just world For all God's children, this was the goal of Jesus. This is our goal. Thanks be to God for this high and holy calling. Amen.